Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. So if we go through the five steps to market, in general, we're going to go through how to define your product, how to verify your product's medical device, determining the classification and pathway, developing what evidence you need, and your pre-market submissions. So step one, we're going to define your product. It always starts with being able to define your intended use. And this is the core concept at the basis of all FDA regulations. This is going to refer to the objective intent or purpose. And you're going to have to think about your labeling, your advertising materials, including your website, any oral written statements, and implied or express complaints that your salespeople may be going out and advertising. So a subset of your intended use is your indications for use. So you can almost see these as fitting within the umbrella of what your product is defined to do. And these include, uh, intended uses can include a specific target pet population. Is it for pediatric or geriatric patients? It can be for duration of use or how long is it intended to be in contact with the body or what anatomical sites is it intended to come in contact with. An example of such a statement is we have an intended use statement that says this product is intended to provide interosseous access in patients when IV access is difficult or impossible to obtain. But specifically within that intended use, we have a very specific indications for use. We go through, this product is for the use in the proximal tibia, the distal tibia, the humeral head, and the distal femur in terms of the anatomical locations. But we also have adult population, but for pediatric populations, we have specific indications. And then finally, we have how long it's intended to be in contact with the body up to 24 hours. And it's important to correctly identify all of your indications for use because these can also impact what performance testing is appropriate. So next, we're going to verify our product as a medical device. So the definition of a medical device under FDA is any instrument, apparatus, machine, implant, in vitro reagent, including a component part or accessory to a medical device that is specifically intended to diagnose, cure, mitigate, treat, or prevent a disease. It affects a structure or function, and it doesn't achieve its purpose as uh, via a mode of action or mechanism of action of a drug which includes being metabolized or absorbed in the body in some fashion. So bear with me. These are going to seem like duh at first, but you're going to see how as we make claims and indications, this story is going to build from a non-regulated product into a regulated product. Is this desk lamp a medical device? No, I don't care that it saves space on my, my desk. I really don't care that it has an LED light bulb. I don't care that it's flexible or that it has no glare. So that does not meet any part of the definition of a medical device. But what happens if this is the light that we are proposing to bring to market? And these are our claims. Compact space saving. Nope, not a medical device. 
Well, what about if we say this is to regain focus and concentration? Well, why do you have trouble focusing and concentrating? Is it because of an underlying medical condition? So that could be borderline. But what if we say it provides natural spectrum daylight to combat depression? Well, depression is a medical condition that is increasingly highly regulated by the FDA to the point that they took a product code that used to have a indication for anxiety, insomnia, and depression, and they took the exact same device for anxiety and insomnia and said it was a class two 510K, but if you took the same technology and you said it was for depression, it's class three PMA. This is a fun one. So on the left, we've got baby diapers, and on the right, we have adult diapers. What happens when we put these through the definition of a medical device? Well, let's look at our intended use statement. The baby diapers are intended to protect an infant's garments from urine or stool. The adult diaper is to prevent an adult's garments from urine or stool. But the trick is that it's intended to protect an incontinent patient's garments. So if we look at it in that context, is it intended to diagnose, cure, mitigate, treat a disease? Baby diapers, no. You're born with the inability to control your urine and bowels. So this is not a medical condition. It's how you come into and show up on the planet. But adult diapers, at the point that you start needing a diaper, at that point, you have a medical condition and something is not working right. It's not intended to, neither are intended to affect the structure or function. They do not uh, achieve their purpose by chemical action or by being metabolized. Therefore, do they meet the, the definition of medical device? The pampers don't. Adult diapers do because again, they're intended to um, mitigate a medical condition. So now that we understand our intended use and we know that our product is a medical device, let's look at how we're gonna determine the appropriate class and pathway. So where do you start? The FDA has a myriad of databases that you can look in to get helpful information. The most informative one, I believe, is the FDA product classification database. And we'll go through a specific example about how to interpret data out of the classification databases. Now, it's important to know, I was talking about masks for six and seven years before the pandemic because it seems like one of the easiest products that, that could be regulated by the FDA. But if you just type the word mask into the product code classification database, you get 16 results. And they all, based off of the intended use statement, are regulated differently. For this example, we're going to talk about the surgical mask, regulated under product code FXX. So again, it's very important to understand your indications for use. Because if you're not making the surgical claim and you're just saying this is a commercial product, like a dust cover, this is a comfort mask. It's not, it's these are things sold at Home Depot. It's not regulated by any government agency. But as soon as we say this has a fluid barrier or a filtration claim, this is regulated by the FDA under product code FXX. 
if we keep building the intended use and claims of this mask and we take the surgical mask and we add an antimicrobial agent to it, this is regulated by FDA underneath a whole different product code, OUK. And oh, by the way, this product code takes about $500,000 worth of testing to bring to market a surgical mask that has an antibacterial coating. If we want to say that these same masks are used for pediatric patient populations, so a very specific indication for use, this is yet another FDA product code. But if we want to say that these are a surgical respirator, now we get into a different government agency and NIOSH has to certify these before you can register them with FDA. So we've decided that we're going to do just a basic surgical mask with the filtration claims. If we look at the product code, we can know so much about this product. We can know the device class, submission type, whether GMP is required, the regulation number, which will tell us what the applicable controls are and what the FDA defines the intended use of this product to be. It will tell us if we are eligible for third-party review or going through a company outside of the FDA to review this product. And last but not least, it will tell us about recognized consensus standards, which will define required testing and also inform design specifications that are gonna be necessary to pass that testing. So if we look at everything that we can gain from the product code database, here we're at our FXX. This is the actual screenshot out of the database. This will tell us our device is a class two. It will tell us our submission type. In this case, we're gonna to have to do a 510K. It will also tell us our regulation number. And if we follow the rabbit trail into how the FDA has defined this regulation, we know the FDA's definition of an intended use, but look at this, this is not just for a surgical mask, it's for all surgical apparel. And it goes into detail about what that includes. It tells us next applicable controls and note we have two separate controls. We have class two special controls like we talked about for gowns and masks, but class one, for other apparel like booties, caps, etc. So maybe you're planning a whole suite of surgical apparel and this might help you strategize or tier your product commercialization to bring those products that don't require 510Ks to market while you're working on your performance data for your surgical gowns and masks. So it's really important to understand these controls and the exemptions that can apply because it can affect your commercialization strategy. So if we keep looking through the FDA database, we see that this regulation specifies a group of consensus standards. Now, based off of your intended use and product features, it can be any or all four of these standards and guidance documents that are gonna dictate what performance criteria, and what design specifications your product has to be. So if you have designed your product without these in mind, there's a strong possibility that you won't pass the required testing. But there could be more because these are only going to tell you standards that are specific to 
masks. Say this is a sterile mask. Sterile is what's called a horizontal standard. So it cuts across a lot of, of many types of sterile products. And that won't be listed here. You have to look in the recognized consensus standard database. Then lastly, it will tell you if it's eligible for third-party review, and if so, which groups are designated to review it. I have heard horror stories. Uh, I, I avoid third-party reviews, just so you know, because they're so much more stringent and, and inflexible than the FDA. And so people go to them thinking that they're going to have an expedited review but they end up just in a quagmire of questions and, and additional information requests. So again, standards that are not listed, is your device sterile? What type of sterilization is going to affect the standards that apply? Is it electrical? There's a whole suite of electrical safety and product specific electrical safety testing and usability testing that's going to apply. The type of patient contact is going to dictate what uh, versions of the biocompatibility standard and is it single use or reusable? You're going to have additional standards for that as well. So, but what about health monitoring and digital health devices? Well, there is a twist with general wellness. So let's take a look at this startup. They are making a device, a sensor that focuses on bruxism. Bruxism is a condition that involves grinding or clenching your teeth. It can happen when you're awake or asleep, but it's primarily known as a sleep-related movement disorder. So this company has got a, a sensor that you wear on your head, and it has an app for the user that can help them monitor their bruxing behavior at night. They also have a plan configuration that has an app for a clinician where he can monitor and diagnose the same behavior and use it to di actually diagnose the condition of bruxism. So this becomes like choose your own adventure. If you carefully structure your claims and intended use, this can be just like a trip to the fridge. It can be sold no prescription in a retail environment to lay users as a general wellness device. You say that this is to help people with bruxism to live well or monitor their sleep health. You cannot claim that that sensor provides or gives biofeedback and it can't give, not just you can't claim. This could also be a walk in the park though, because FDA has a product call, code HCC that's specifically for biofeedback devices. And if your indications are that it's for prescription use, by a professional clinician, then it is regulated as a class two device, but it's one of that magic category that's 510K exempt. Like we were talking about how all the weird exemptions can, can stack up. So while you have to apply design controls and all the quality system elements to it, you don't have to go through a formal submission to the FDA. But what happens if we say, we want to take this device add biofeedback, and we want to sell it directly to the user without a prescription. Well, then we've exceeded how the FDA has defined those exemptions in the regulation. And now this requires a 510K, possibly a de novo, depending on some, some of the other product features.
So now let's look at developing valid scientific evidence. This is where regulatory and quality and R&D typically kind of get in a fight and duke it out. So you really need to just kind of stop fighting, especially at this point. We understand from our recognized consensus standards what our preclinical uh, testing is going, going to be required. We understand from our predicate comparison if we're going to need to do side-by-side -side or bench testing. If there's going to be any animal or clinical testing, we'll have an idea of that. And last but not least, the, the hot topic right now at the agency is usability engineering testing. This is a subset of risk management. So if you're going to need to consider whether all of these are applicable or not and make a justification for why they're not. And less and less rationales about what we consider well-known techniques or well-known materials is being recognized by the agency. So let's now discuss uh, what our pre-market submission is going to be now that we understand what some of our options for our pathway could be. So the class one 510k exempt is basically going to be like a walk in the park. Your 510k is like a half marathon. It's going to take some training and commitment but it's nowhere like running a marathon or filing a de novo, and neither of them comes close to the training and preparation it's gonna take for a pre-market approval or a PMA. So for a 510K, this is gonna make up the bulk of the submissions to the agency. This is the type of market application for low and moderate risk devices. It is reliant on a term known as substantial equivalence between your proposed device and an already legally marketed device, where you're going to take feature by feature and compare intended use, device features and technology, and performance testing. And so therefore, choosing the right predicate device is key. So for substantial equivalence considerations, you have got a green light if the device has the same intended use as the predicate, and it has the same technological con considerations as the predicate. Or you have to have the combination of these three. It has the same intended use, and it ha has different technological characteristics, but it does not raise new questions of safety and efficacy, and the information submitted to the FDA demonstrates that that device, even though it's different from your predicate, it is as safe and as effective as your legally marketed predicate. So let's take a look. This is our proposed device. It's intended use, it's a fruit. Its indication for use is one a day keeps the doctor away. It has a thin outer waxy skin and a crispy light colored juicy pulp. So if that's our device, this question about our proposed device seems easy, right? You know, in all features, exterior and interior, it looks like device A is going to be the best predicate. Device B, it's different in color. You know, I think it's pretty clear just the color wouldn't raise a new question of safety and efficacy. And then over here, we're talking apples and oranges, and that's just not the same, right? Well. What if this is your proposed device? And it's intended use is still a fruit. 
Its indication for use is it's one a day, keeps the doctor arrayed, but it also provides your daily dose of vitamin C. And its technology is through a thin waxy outer skin with a juicy orange pulp. Well, now this is what your predicate comparison table starts looking like. This is your proposed device. You have a primary predicate, which for all means and ends is functionally the same for the bulk of the technological features you're gonna discuss. And then you bring in a reference device that the purpose is pretty much to discuss that one feature, in this case, the pulp, that is different from your primary predicate. And we're gonna turn in evidence that says that, hey, just because this has pulp and doesn't mean that it's raising new questions of safety and efficacy. So there are many types of 510Ks. You've got your traditional, which is the most common. Abbreviated is gonna rely on the use of a product-specific guidance document, for instance, surgical masks. So a new pathway called abbreviated safety and performance, where FDA is going to have a very detailed criteria of what a submission is going to contain with very specific standards and acceptance criteria for those standards. And then a special 510K, you already have to own, your, own the 510K and be making changes to your own legally marketed device that fall within that scope. So for de novos, this is an increasingly popular method of submission. It's of new, so there is something new or novel to your device, but it doesn't automatically go into that high-risk, life-supporting, life-sustaining. So this means that there's no clear predicate or regulation based on that's the best fit for your product. And so you go in with, uh, with this de novo process, and the end result of it is that the FDA writes a regulation and special controls to govern this product that's specific to your submission. It's an opportunity for you to tell FDA how all subsequent products through the controls that they need to be brought to market with. Let's look at an example of de novos with computer-aided devices. So there's a whole myriad. You have computer-aided for detection, for diagnosis, for detection and diagnosis, for triage, and for acquisition optimization. Again, based off of the claims and indications, all of these are going to be regulated very differently by the FDA. Here is a CADEX software that is for lesions of suspicious, suspicious for breast cancer. It came to market in 2007 under a de novo that was granted, which result, again, like we said, de novo results in a classification, usually in class two plus a special control. So now the subsequent companies can bring this product to market underneath the 510K as long as they meet the special control criteria. And we can see in, in 2009, now we have four 510Ks that have come to market underneath that product code that came out of that original de novo. So one thing you have to think about in your commercialization, not only your commercialization strategy, but in your regulatory strategy for discussions with the FDA. Say you have a product that's got maybe some basic features that are class two device. You throw it in feature X and feature Y and the combination of them would throw it into de novo territory. 
So that's a big step. But what if we started with a 510K and we added on what features we could through a special or subsequent traditional 510K? And then we kept it to just that one feature that took it over into that de novo. The advantages here is that you would focus the FDA. You would already have had clearance on all these features. The FDA would already be comfortable with this product. And at this point, you would be talking about just the feature that needed to be discussed for safety and efficacy, not the product as a whole. So uh, again, you can build in terms of the time it takes to market and the overall cost that it takes to market. And at the point you get a 510K, even if it's not the end device that you raise money for, you can at least have something in commercialization that you can be putting in funding, maybe some sub subsequent development. So PMAs, these are for the highest risk devices. They have to have a reasonable assurance of safety and efficacy, and all the evidence has to stand on its own. So what that looks like when you compare them is, again, for a 510K, it's based on the concept of substantial equivalence in comparison to the predicate. And if you can't have a solid substantial equivalence discussion, then it serves to classify a novel device into one or two. It depends on the outcome of the, the PMA is going to require valid scientific evidence of safety and efficacy. The average length of a 510K is 500 to 1,000 pages. That is actually creeping up between 1,000 and 1,500 pages. The de novo, that's going to depend on the outcome of the de novo request. You're usually going to be around the two to 3,000 range. But if you get denied, you're going to be off in PMA land. And this is going to be 30 plus three ring binders worth of data. And that includes extensive clinical trials. The FDA clocks outside of COVID, they say a traditional 510K is going to be 90 days. This typically takes 100 to 150 days. I tell my customers that you need to set expectations that the whole thing could take five months. But again, that's outside of COVID. The FDA clock for de novos is 120 days. Two years ago, their, their clock reality was 210. And for a PMA, you're, you're going to effectively be looking at close to a, a full year before you get a PMA approved. Pre-approval inspections with a 510K, it is extremely rare. There's some... A, a, cases they'll uh, go and do pre-approval inspections of infusion pumps. De novos, the FDA just in January issued a guidance that says in rare cases that they can um, inspect de novos when they, they don't feel like a company has got a long regulatory history with the FDA or has a compromised history with the FDA. Um, PMAs, you have to have a pre-approval inspection. As a startup, you need to apply for the small business in the fiscal year in which you're going to make your submission for a discount. Um, and the, the fees can range anywhere from $3,000 to $30,000 to, you know, upwards of $90,000. So market clearance, it's not the end of the race. So what do you need to do now? Well, you're not done. You have to think about quality management system because your work has really just begun. 
now that you've gotten your product cleared, granted, approved, you are going to be responsible for the full scope of 21 CFR and all of its associated SOPs and records. And so you are going to need for all class two and above products, a design history file. And this basically is like the story of how you develop that recipe for making your device. Your device master record is going to ultimately be an output of the DHF. And this is like the actual recipe itself. If I need to sit down and follow this recipe and make this device again and again, I'm going to pull out the device master record. Whereas the device history record is going to be the document for each lot or batch manufactured. And it's the evidence that that specific unit or batch was made in, in accordance to that recipe. So if you are a class two product, you're a specification developer and you have it contract manufactured, no matter what, you are going to be responsible for some level of quality management system for these aspects outlined here. So you can't just outsource, even if you outsourced all your manufacturing fulfillment, you can't outsource the entire quality management system.